Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue 12 of our comics bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 1994's The Crow, as well as 2009's Watchmen. As before, we might get some triggering conversations, just letting you know that in advance. And we hope to see you next time. Where we'll definitely give a recap of what won this week. Mm-hmm. Hold on to your butts. With that, let's go ahead and get into The Crow. Okay, so we talked a bit about the Crow's history before, that it was James Abar. Way of processing the death of his girlfriend in a hit and run. What we didn't get into is how he kind of regrets writing the whole thing. Looking back on it, he said that he felt like it didn't actually help him process anything, and it led to several deaths, and he feels really bad about that. And he feels like it was his fault, and if he'd never written the damn thing, it wouldn't have happened. And I respect that. Luckily, he's worked through that some, and he has now said that he's kind of come to terms with it, and he understands why he wrote the story, and, and he sees good in it. So I'm glad he's kind of had a whole arc with that. Looking at the interviews, you kind of see this process of growth and healing, and I appreciate it a lot. The comic came out in 1989 and was quickly picked up into a film, which we'll be talking about today. The film was a hurricane of flaws, sometimes literally. A hurricane destroyed a lot of their sets, so they decided to just keep going without changing the production schedule at all. There a lot of union disputes, a lot of cost-cutting, some fires. Brandon Lee died after giving us the amazing line where, because of the rapid cocaine abuse on the set, he heard someone sneeze and said, Oh, someone's lost $50. Wait, all of the cocaine abuse on set? Like... The crow is like a walking deer program in the film. It sure is. There's even a dare sign in the police office. <sighs> yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. There were a lot of production troubles to the point where the studio next to them started taking bets on when the next bad thing would happen and then stopped doing that when something caught fire that spread to that studio. Wow. Someone didn't want this movie made and they were trying their darndest to keep it from happening. A natural catastrophe, an act of God, who knows, but something... But the film didn't do super well at first because the conversations surrounding it made people kind of hesitant, but it still captured the hearts and minds of some people in a generation, and that led to people trying to recapture that candle in a bottle, and it hasn't really worked. (laughs) There have been three more films, City of Angels in 1996, which is more of the same. Uh, Someone dies and comes back and... I'm assuming it takes place in Los Angeles. How did you guess? There's The Crow Salvation from 2000, and then The Crow Wicked Prayer in 2005. My notes are blurry, so I didn't write down which one has the whole, like, The Crow versus the Devil plot, but I'm guessing it's the one with a 0% Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, there's also some video games. There's the TV show that ran for a season, and is more or less the first movie that, like, got Eric Draven and Shelley and all that jazz, but because they had to fill 22 episodes, they lean more into other dark fantasy stuff in this town. It's maybe not great, but it's in that same kind of vein of, like, the Buffies and the charms of the world and if that's your kind of thing it's worth checking out some of the characters do a pretty good job and some of the actors are doing a good job that kind of thing the crow gets put on trial at one point that's a whole thing <laughs> there are also a bunch of books because listen this is a really easy franchise to just keep recycling because someone has to die and come back and do some violence so it's a really easy setup so we've had a lot of crows over the years of different genders and ages and situations one of the comic continuations uh the crow curare is about a uh, a child who gets crowed Oof. Yeah, and she doesn't understand what's happening, so it's all just a child's perspective on this scary experience, which is really horrifying and really haunting, and I think it adds a dimension of amorality to this mystical force that I think makes it a little more spooky and helps with the kind of why these people. It's not that they're a good choice, it's more just that they had a lot of pain, they hit the Richter scale, so they got picked. 
Mm-hmm. The books aren't necessarily super notable, although one of them, The Lazarus Heart, does have a gay protagonist and a transgender best friend, so that's fun. And, you know, things I appreciate. And like we talked about last time, they've been trying to reboot the franchise for a while, but it's not happening possibly because the gods don't want them to, and they're not letting it happen. They're putting their foot down. I wouldn't mind New Crow, but I think I would want the right people doing it. Like, I would love to have a Lady Crow on the big screen. I think that could be really fun, especially if they don't try to do the original comic and just try to do the broad concept and let it go where it will. Yeah, I think that makes a lot more sense and it allows the original to kind of stand on its own as a sort of time capsule into the period of which it was created. Right. And there's a lot of atrocity that happens in the world that you could interact with in other Crow. Or go the other direction. Pick, like... Something something the Borgias. Something something ancient Rome. Something something the Han Dynasty is falling and there's a crow there. I mean, Vampire the Masquerade did it. Yeah, exactly. That's a rough summary of the crow. However, I haven't gotten to the best part, which is the crow as played by Simon Pegg. What? There's an episode of Robot Chicken where there's a Wizard of Oz riff where the Dorothy analog is like, hmm, these characters are boring. We're going to replace the Scarecrow with the crow and the Tin Man with Optimus Prime, etc. That and sounds wonderful. It's okay. For a seven-minute thing, it is not painful. Doesn't matter. Existence is nothing but frustration and pain. Everything you love eventually leaves you. Misery is your only constant friend. It is not the worst Wizard of Oz thing I've seen. Oh god, Muppet Wizard of Oz. But we're not talking about Muppet Wizard of Oz. We're talking about The Crow from 1994. This weirdly optimistic movie. Yeah, we talked about this last episode where it went up against The Mask, and I felt so much better about watching The Crow than I did the watching The Mask. <laughs> I mean, the core thesis is, Can't rain all the time. Which is a good thesis. It work. Mm. And there's all these bits of lightness, like the barman who employs Sarah's mom and is sad about her situation but can't really do much, still gives her drinks on the house. Uh, root beer, not like, not, yeah. Or there's Eric laughing at seeing some kids who are out trick-or-treating and just having a good time and being happy about that. There's Sarah and her mom trying to make things work. There's the whole scene with Darla and the crow where he talked about the crow being a walking dare program, sucks the heroin out of her veins, and tells her, like, hey, get your life together. Just like, the guy's probably she goes, morphine is bad for you. <laughs> Honestly, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with that scene. They're playing with the religious undertones there where the crow gets shot in the hand by Fun Boy and, you know, looks like the stigmata then we have some unfortunate healing effects that repair that. Yeah. There's this strobing light effect that's going on, and the way it highlights the gun that previously in the scene wasn't prominent is really interesting. I like what's going on there. It's one of those parts of the film that really understands what to do as far as cinematography goes and how to lay out a scene and draw attention where it's needed. Mm Mm-hmm. Last time we talked about how there's religious imagery that doesn't seem to go anywhere, and I think it still doesn't go anywhere, but I'm starting to get where it's going. It's like I'm seeing the grand design. Specifically, there's a bit where the hot dog seller talks about how... You know, what this place needs is a good natural catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Top Dollar later talks about how he's trying to figure out if the pawnbroker's store being burned down was a natural catastrophe, an act of God. So there's this implication that the crow is mech this natural disaster slash act of God that the city needs, mm. which is, it's definitely saying something, but I can't quite tell where the next step of that is. If the crow moves on, check back next time, and we will have to figure out more of uh, the, the grand design of religion and the crow. 
one more symbolism thing we were talking about the cinematography just while we're here there's a great bit where Sarah is looking for Eric in his old apartments and starting to give up on him a little bit because he's not answering her when she's saying something then he shows back up and he's standing in the circular window he leans down and hugs her and it forms a halo around his head if this whole thing about like him having this humanity making him more of an angel I like that mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of playing with that humanity. It, the way that Lee reverts to the character of Eric whenever he has to live through trauma is really compelling, and it brings this humanness to a role that wouldn't otherwise need it. It's one of the few things before the finale that's actually able to harm the crow is this terrible trauma of his and uh, his girlfriend's past. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if he's so much being harmed as he's... Well, so in Fate, the role-playing game, you have two different stress tracks. You have mental stress and physical stress. He seems impervious to physical stress, but he consults like mental stress and is doing that thing. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the good cinematography. Unfortunately, there's also some really bad cinematography. Mm -hmm. The way the chase scene is shot is just terrible. It's incredibly difficult to follow. It definitely has intensity, but if you're evaluating it as a, like, action set piece as opposed to just an emotional landscape it doesn't work as well yeah honestly considering what you were saying about the production troubles i'm not surprised if they were working with a very small set and just weren't able to do that scene justice because of it yeah other weird thing i noticed in that scene is there's this one blink and you miss it shot of these cops beginning to get involved in chase and like jerking forward in their car and cops spilling hot coffee on his lap So this movie came out in 1994, which is also the same year as the McDonald's hot coffee case was decided. Ooh. Yeah, and it had been in the news a bunch. Media completely distorted what was going on there and led to an entire movement of tort reform. There's a documentary that came out a few years ago called Hot Coffee, if you want more information. It's really good, actually. Yeah. Like, I saw it there, and I'm like, wait, that can't be a reference to that, can it? And sure enough, yeah, it probably is. It was just part of the cultural zeitgeist. And there's movies where that could fit in, but this isn't one of them. Like, I have a harder believing that, like, um, something as bright and sunny as a McDonald's could exist in this world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, now that McDonald's is, like, bright and sunny and devoid of capitalism or anything, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah. That chasing also bothers me because it comes not long after Eric's conversation with Albrecht, and he doesn't seem to have changed all that much from that conversation. Because I, I don't know, I apparently just forgot that whole scene. I was hoping it was going to be a thing where he's more gentle or more forgiving or whatever, but he's not. Yeah, that's part of how we came to the consensus that there's really two characters that Brandon Lee is playing in this film, mm-hmm. because it's very difficult to understand this as one character when so much of a shift back and forth between this Eric persona and the Crow persona. Mm -hmm. That said, while the car chase scene doesn't work super well, the fight in the church at the end is really good. I mean, it's basically just three spaces they're moving through, but they move through them well, and you have a really good sense of where everybody is, you know where they're going and why. That works really well. I think it's having that interior that they can control entirely worked really well for them. Yeah. Honestly, the only issue I have with those scenes is, why does Ernie Hudson have a flare gun revolver? That seems like a weird thing to have. It does, but I I, I get nothing. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a very minor thing. I'm not going to fill up the film too much for it. It just seems weird. Although, one of the other large fights, when the crow goes after Top Dollar directly at his mob hideout, that fight scene is unfortunately not as well shot and paced Mm -hmm. there's this weird lull in the middle and it 
doesn't pick up again until the crow starts fighting hand-to-hand. It also has a similar strobing effect to the confrontation with Fun Boy, and it's really overused here. It's very difficult to tell what's going on and where anyone is in that fight. Agreed. Although one thing I will say for it, there were some women who were part of this mob thing that seems to be more like just at best girlfriends of some of these mobsters, and he specifically doesn't kill them and he sort of like pushes them relatively gently out of the way so they're not involved in the conflict, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that he's not just murdering everything within 30 feet of him. He's going after the people who he judges being bad. He has some standards and that makes me like him a little bit more. Mm Mm-hmm. Back with that church scene, I have this moment around when Eric gets stabbed through the back and collapses to the you know to the roof. I have a thought thought where like I realized that I didn't know what was going to happen next, even though I saw this movie like a month ago. Mm-hmm. Even though I know how this ends and we've talked about it exhaustively, I still have this moment where I was like, <gasps> so I appreciate that it kind of got me into that headspace where I was genuinely like believing that I was compelled. Yeah, like we talked at length about why that's actually able to work in The Crow and how taking away his powers for the climax is really great. Even if the way the powers get taken away isn't the best, the fact that they do it makes the story better. Yeah, I was picking up a little bit more on Micah's mysticism. It does run all throughout. It still doesn't get explained, but it's not like she just suddenly knows that out of nowhere. She is a character who like put ranks into Arcana or whatever. It's just that it's still, we don't know why. Yeah, it's also still really cliche and stereotypical and still yeah. not great. Yeah. My only other, I guess, as we move towards Watchmen is that the crow feels like it should be a character in Watchmen. Not so much with the mechanics, because the Watchmen is a more sci-fi-ish thing and less on the fantasy level. The crow is definitely like in a supernatural space, but he feels like a dark subversion of superhero tropes. And I feel like he's the grenade and the lemonade that Watchmen needs. Or alternatively, Watchmen needs to have a little bit more of the crow in it because this character is dark and tortured and you need time to tease that out narratively, which I think Watchmen as a film doesn't quite have the space. Not really. And we'll go ahead and get into that after I give a bit of franchise history. For sure. So tell me about the history of Watchmen. So I went pretty in-depth into the history of Watchmen and the characters from Charleston Comics and Steve Ditko and all that last time so i'm not going to mention it here but for a rough timeline in 86 the series begins its release it's written by alan moore art is done by dave gibbons and color is done by john higgins next year 87 the series finishes its single issue release and then it's collected as a trade paperback and marketed as a graphic novel graphic novel is a term at that time was be actually used by major publishing companies as opposed to just a term that was used amongst industry insiders to kind of talk about the high art of comics between this and frank miller's the dark knight returns that's when dc kind of really leaned into that graphic novel marketing to push their standalone more high art books and i'll admit i'm not a huge fan of the whole like comic book versus graphic novel divide i understand how it can be useful for understanding the amount of content you're buying but i think the phrase trade paperback works just as well or if you need like a longer thing like those like giant sandman books you call them an omnibus or whatever the separation between low art and high art it gets really classist and can be very gatekeepery and can be really frustrating when that comes in especially at the expense of stories that have been running for a long time and are really strong they just happen to be serialized 
Mm -hmm. I would tend to agree with most of that. Graphic novel and setting that aside as opposed to like comic books tends to hurt more independent creators as opposed to creators working for larger companies. So that's kind of crappy too. But moving on, in 1988, Watchmen wins a Hugo Award in the Other Forms category. Wait, the Other Forms category? Yes, a category that was specifically created for it and never used again. Oh, that's why I've never heard of it. (laughs) Because at the time, the Hugos didn't have any category for a work of fiction that wasn't like a novel or a novella or something like that, and more focused on art as opposed to just prose and text. And it wasn't until 2009 where they got the best graphic story category that that was remedied. Mm. Then, bit of a gap from 88, go to 2008... And Watchmen is adapted into a narrated motion comic specifically to build up to 2009, where we have the Watchmen film premieres. Then in 2012, a Before Watchmen prequel series is produced by DC Comics. And it consists of a number of issues, Minutemen, Silk Spectre, The Comedian, pretty much all the main characters, in addition to Moloch as well as a dollar bill one-shot are all produced. And there's also a, or plans for an unpublished one-issue epilogue to kind of cap everything off. Mm-hmm. Depending on the series, some were positively received, some more mixed, some more negative. But neither Moore nor Gibbons were involved with any of these series. Ooh. Yeah. Got that one over well. Yeah. In fact, Moore had this to say about the series. What the comics industry has effectively said is, yes, this was the only book that made us briefly special, and that was because it wasn't like all the other books. Watchmen was something that stood on its own and had the integrity of a literary work. What they've decided now is, so let's change it to a regular comic that can run indefinitely and have spin-offs, and let's make it as unexceptional as possible. Like I say, they're doing this because they haven't got any other choices left, evidently. Which is pleasantly scathing. He is effectively just calling DC Comics creatively bankrupt. Although I'm kind of in the camp of, yes, we should dilute that. We should pull it down from its pedestal. I got around to reading the comics for this one because I hadn't for the last one. And they're very much a product over their time. And if you're not reading them with that in mind, it doesn't have a whole lot of relevancy to 2019. I still think they're really great works and they are monumental in the history of comics. But I think it's time for other stories to be elevated up to where Watchmen is slash was. Right. And I, I appreciate like their place in the history of comic books because that is a, a significant thing. And they did bring a lot of, I guess, l- legitimacy to comics for better or worse. But mm-hmm. I also think they're not very nice to look at. I know that isn't the biggest thing, but watching The Crow made me like, you know, feel some complicated feelings and want to like be a better person. Call my dad or whatever. Reading Watchmen made me kind of want to just go back to sleep. It's just kind of garish colors that seem like they are all the shade of vomits, but in different like hues. Uh, I can see that. I enjoyed the color palette of Watchmen. It was very different, especially at the time. It makes it unique. It also is a little bit more reminiscent of the pastels for, like, newspaper comics. Mm, that's true. There's also a little bit of 60s psychedelic stuff going on with it. Yeah, and I do appreciate the 60s psychedelics. So... After the scathing quote from Moore and the before Watchmen series. Then in 2017, they decided to do a sequel to the Watchmen series called Doomsday Clock. Now, not only is it a sequel to Watchmen series, but this also ties into the DC Rebirth comics line, which is them retconning Flashpoint and the New 52 that started in 2011. God. Fun fact, it was originally planned as a 12-issue monthly release and ending in December of 2018. This series 
because of schedule pushbacks, still isn't finished. Issue 9 came out earlier this month. Oh, wow. Yeah, this isn't going to finish until July of 2019. That's how long it's taken this series to try and come to fruition. From what I've seen online, it's mostly positive reviews, but I am not certain that's going to stay that way considering the production troubles. Mm. But they decided to cross over Watchmen with the normal DC Comics universe. So you can have Batman tell Ozymandias that he's a terrible person for what he decided to do. And you can see Superman and Dr. Manhattan fight each other or whatnot. Of course. I'd be down with that for like a what if. I'm not sure if I need that for like a continuation in that universe. Yeah, and especially not something that you're going to build the foundation of the DC Comics universe on after this whole retcon event is over. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's not going to stick. It's DC. They'll reboot another five years down the line. That's true. Then as far as future plans for Watchmen, Warner Brothers has Warner Brothers announced in 2017 plans for an R-rated animated movie based on the comics, but haven't heard or seen anything from that. Sure. So it's probably either shelved, canceled, or in production hell. That said, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing how that played out. While I don't necessarily like the colors, I think they are a big part of the story, and I would enjoy seeing a more faithful rendering of that. Yeah. Also, later this year, HBO is premiering a TV series adaptation of the comic. Uh, we'll we'll see how that is. Mm. And as we know, HBO is always great about handling complicated subjects of moral greatness and sexual assault, so... <sighs> Well, I mean, we also do have a whole other podcast to talk about that. But shh, it's a secret. Secrets are coming. It seems like there's a lot of things to like try to revitalize that Watchmen momentum and it's not working. And I think part of it is Watchmen is super, super dense. A lot of it is predicated upon things that were going on in 1986 that most of the people who are really into comics right now in their mid-30s probably don't have a great understanding of because they were children at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's done in a way where you can't really boil things down super well. You can't tell a story of Night Owl without getting into Rorschach and Silk Spectre. You can't tell a story of Dr. Manhattan without getting into Silk Spectre and having the other characters as a grounding point for him. You can't tell a story of Ozymandias without him having these other heroes to bounce off of and do better than yeah we've talked a lot about the comic and the franchise let's go ahead and get into the actual film <laughs> right so i'm gonna come out swinging with a bit of a back tread that i realized this time through okay we talked about how it's a problem that Zack snyder seems to think that rorschach should be the main character i kind of get why he's a bad dude he is an awful awful person and he's softened in the movies but not enough to make him a good person and it's a problem that Zack Snyder didn't seem to realize that wasn't what you're supposed to do but he's also one of the few characters who's doing something I have no problem with Rorschach being the main character of the film I have a problem with Rorschach being understood as a protagonist and someone that the audience is supposed to empathize and look onto because we have Rorschach as one of our main point of view characters for this film that brings the audience is to his viewpoint and it gives it legitimacy yeah but also it's hard to focus on the other characters because for part of the narrative they're not really doing much like silk specter and night owl are spinning and being sad in the detritus of their lives why'd we do it dan dress up like that silk specter is being a live-in nuclear deterrent thanks for serving your country but seem to have like much else going on that he's working towards and you need Ozymandias to be distant because villain mm-hmm. and Dr. Manhattan doesn't work because he's so alien mm-hmm. and the film doesn't really do a great job of helping with that. 
I mean, I could see a film that lets you know what was going on with Ozymandias or started playing up that there's something off about him much earlier and that would have given you some more stuff to dig your teeth into regarding him. Mm -hmm. That would have been a deviation. Honestly, not even necessarily a deviation from the comic because there's a lot of little bits and pieces you get with characters who are not masks that feeds into Ozymandias and you start seeing the puzzle pieces come together you just don't know it's connected to him quite yet right i think part of that is just inherently a problem with trying to film watchmen and especially trying to remove so much of the content that is not connected to these cape characters and not connected to the world and how normal everyday people are dealing with the goings on Mm -hmm. there are narratives where you can do that and get away with it a lot of the mcu films are about these kind of big titanic level things you don't really get the street level perspective and you know you're missing out on that but it's not the worst for it but this is a a narrative where right and wrong for the people and what people need and should do and should care about is a big part of it and if those people aren't really in the story as much then it doesn't matter as much when they're being lied to or being energy beamed yeah, it's also in the MCU you have characters who are act- actively considering what is best for the whole of humanity as opposed to just for themselves. That's not the case in Watchmen. All of these p- individuals are incredibly self-centered. That's mm-hmm. kind of the point. Yeah. Without those non-mass characters as much, it's harder to care about these characters because they don't seem to be affecting anything that you care about, namely a world of good kind people who are doing stuff. The version without the the kid with the comics and, and all that jazz is more streamlined, and I appreciated that. But also, it was so divorced from the world that they were background noise almost. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit. We were talking about the mask versus the normal people, and I think the furthest we get away from normal people is Dr. Manhattan. I think the way Moore understands Dr. Manhattan and the way Snyder understands Dr. Manhattan are very, very different. Mm. I think Moore understands Dr. Manhattan as this inherently alien being. He's lost his humanity after the accident and he has trouble connecting with people. And I more see Snyder viewing Dr. Manhattan as having this weakness that he has all this power and all this strength and for the most part is incredibly reluctant to use it. I think one of the most eye-opening scenes in that regard is where you have Snyder juxtaposing Manhattan's unwillingness to act directly next to his impotence or indifference to Silk Spectre. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of associating this virile maleness and strength and saying, oh, Dr. Manhattan doesn't have that. That's why the world is the way it is. I can see that. And the way that manifests is very subtly different from the comics. In the comics, Dr. Manhattan is trying this weird doubling himself thing because he's he's actually trying to get to Silk Spectre to like, have a good time because he doesn't understand her anymore, but he's trying this to see if it works, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. Whereas in the movie, he feels almost more distracted by it. It is still him failing to understand how people do, but in a way that is more absent-minded than experimental. Mm-hmm. Also regarding Dr. Manhattan, I do think we needed to talk about the CGI associated with that character. It is not aged very well. No, it's not awful. I like a lot of the Mars stuff. Honestly, like it looks gorgeous. Yeah. Like, they render this very alien landscape in a way that is both barren but not devoid. Yeah. I have very few problems with the other CG going on. Ozymandias Lynx looks a little weird, but we honestly don't get much of it, so it's not a huge problem. Yeah. 
but this is like a major character so it's really sticks out like a sore thumb with dr manhattan and i I think it's mostly just there was this awkward phase of like the motion capture technology going on at the time i just don't think it works i'm also frustrated with the film and the the way it handles dr manhattan's nudity Mm. we've already talked about the male gaziness of Zack Snyder and the film adaptation elsewhere and him including scenes of female nudity that were not there in the comic and I think one of the reasons that he thought it was okay to do that is because well I'm going to be showing full frontal male nudity how often does that happen in film but you're not really that's no one's actual penis it's just a CGI render of one and I think there's a big difference there it also shows up very infrequently and it's whenever female nudity is presented in the film is always titillating whereas nothing titillating is happening with dr manhattan yeah i've never been less titillated yeah it's it's very clinical and just matter of fact which i mean that makes sense this character is very clinical and matter of fact dr manhattan is not like a, a smooth lover figure yeah There's also the way it treats Dan's nudity. Like in the comic, there's a point at which Dan is naked down in his night owl cave staring at his old costume. And he's just kind of this out of shape, middle-aged guy. He has this paunch belly and he does not look in great shape. And it's just reinforcing how much of this sad sack that Dan is after having to retire. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And we never really get that same vulnerability from dan in the film Mm -hmm. even in the sex scenes with laurie or the recreation of the scene down in the basement there's never that same connection that you have in the comics Mm -hmm. quick interlude of a cool thing that the movie did at least one thing that i really like that the Mm -hmm. comics didn't do when dr manhattan blows up rorschach he turns into a rorschach splatter on the ground Mm -hmm. which was a really good visual and it's a cool bookend for this character that you don't have in the comic there you just kind of just turns to dust effectively yeah I'm not sure if it has a deeper symbolism than, ooh, that looks pretty, but they saw this opportunity and they took it. I like that. Yeah. There's also the fact that in the comic, Dan does not see the act. He is with Laurie and consoling her with all of the terrible knowledge that they now possess. And Rorschach leaves and is going to tell the world and Manhattan stops him. It's a very different scene. I think one of the biggest ways that the movie deviates from the comic is those sort of final few scenes. Mm -hmm. Again, it's that sort of thing, like Dan yelling, about the murder of Rorschach that as much as they've shown Rorschach as not a good individual necessarily there's this legitimacy that's given to Rorschach in that scene that's not there in the comics Mm. and while I think Rorschach is a pretty awful person I don't necessarily think if like I'm down with what happens to him in the way it does yeah I'm, I'm not saying oh like Rorschach should have definitely been murdered but the emotional reaction that it brings out from dan is i don't know it just it lets this character be complicated and i think letting characters be complicated is important for watchmen fair enough but i really don't feel that rorschach is terribly complicated i think he's one of the easiest to understand oh no i mean uh dan 
Oh, uh, yeah, fair enough. Like, he's definitely afraid of Rorschach, doesn't like a lot of what he's doing, but he also acknowledges that Rorschach has been a friend to him when he doesn't really have a lot of friends. And I can understand what it's like to care about a person while also thinking that they're a bad guy. Yeah. Dan seems like a person who has the most potential to not be the worst, and I kind of want better for him, so I'm more forgiving of him as a character. That's very fair. Part of that is because he doesn't get much of an arc and background in the film as much as he does in the comic. In the comic, he is less of a likable character. Yeah. Even just the way he's drawn, he's rarely ever smiling. He always has this kind of confused or sad look on his face. And after he puts on the suit, he's never draw the way that he is in flashbacks. He's always still got this kind of middle-aged guy paunch. He's never Night Owl again. He's just a guy who's play-acting as him. Mm -hmm. Which the film doesn't really do as well since we get that prison break scene that's very, like, action-heavy and like, ah, he's back. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I do want to get into is another level that the film kind of fails to live up to the comic is how much of parallels that even from the very first issues that the comic is drawing between Silk Spectre 2 and the comedian. I I think some of the prominent examples are the way she laughs about captain carnage and the elevator shaft with rorschach that's still in the film that scene is slightly truncated if you haven't seen or don't remember it's the bit where they're laughing somewhat darkly about a villain who was just really into getting beaten up in ways that he maybe could have found better outlets for than rorschach dropped on an elevator shaft (laughs) (laughs) oh my god that's not even funny there's also the fact that both of them started masked heroing at 16. The film never really gets into that. We, we talked about how it's a problem on a couple levels for the comedian to just look the same in all those cutscenes. Like, this is another one. It draws that similarity that the two of them have further apart in the film. And that trail of breadcrumbs of parallels between Laurie and the comedian are really effective once you get the reveal of Eddie being her father. And it's just another thing that the film doesn't really concern itself with. Mm-hmm. I believe that's a whole another aspect of character arcs that it would have to get into, and there's so many that are crammed in. But I think that's one that they could have front-loaded more and given Laurie more to do with her narrative, and that would have been nice. Yeah, I think there's also the fact that some of the softening of Rorschach also happens to the comedian. Mm. Sally, uh, Jupiter, Silk Spectre 1, at one point comments, It rains on the just and the unjust alike. And there's a line change in the comic, except in California, which is where she's at, which kind of leads to this, that's why she moved there to try and get away from everything. Whereas in the film, she mentioned, The comedian has a little bit of both. I can understand why they're putting those words into Sally's mouth. She has changed her perspective on Eddie in her old age, but I don't know, it just seems weird to me that they would change the line like that. I think we already got that from that scene, whereas the California line adds such a wry irony to her that I think would help her be more of a character. Because mm-hmm. she really is meant to be kind of the like classic Hollywood dame. That's a lot of what I get from her as a figure, and that would have helped a lot with that. Mm-hmm. I do one last thing about kind of the way the film structures itself. The film has a lot of flashbacks. It's a big part of the thing. The book has them too, but they don't feel as long. In the the book, it's kind of you turn the page and now we're in a flashback and then it goes and then it's gone pretty fast and you're back in the present. Whereas with the movie, we're in a flashback and then we stay there for a while. Like we're here to chill in this bar in Vietnam for a bit. I think that's kind of to the detriment of the film because it makes the past and present break down and it could be really interesting if it was talking about um, cycles repeating, but it's not doing that as much. Mm. And I think it makes you less 
invested in the current through line because it's, you're constantly shifting back to doing the math of when are we in this timeline and what are we learning and who's the focus of the scene, that kind of thing. Yeah. And in the comic, they just feel a lot more contemplative. There's also a lot more interesting things happening going on with the framing of shots and the things are framed in a certain way at the end of a flashback sequence. And then it moves back into the modern day. I am specifically thinking of at the funeral. Yeah, the funeral is really good. And the framing is incredibly similar to the last shot of the flashback and it works on it's like tying the past to the present and it, it's really effective because you have a sense that these characters are thinking about this thing at the time which makes sense each of them is one of their most prominent memories of interacting with the comedian mm-hmm. for dan it's the riots for dr manhattan it's vietnam mm-hmm. for ozymandias it's the crime busters meeting we've been talking for quite a while i think i'm ready to make a decision Oh, I've been ready. I knew going in that I was going to vote for The Crow. Sorry, I knew going in that I was going to vote for The Crow, but this I'm watching through, I found myself tearing up towards the end, and I'm not, like, I still don't fully understand what it is about The Crow that gets me on that level. Maybe it's just the music or whatever, but, like, I was, like, really feeling it when I'm watching through it. It just, it feels good, I guess. I am also voting for The Crow. I think what my decision comes down to is we've talked previously about how the original comic for The Crow is kind of just edgy 90s schlock. Mm -hmm. And the film really takes a look at what the main focus of the comic and it elevates it and incorporates complexity to it that wasn't there before. Whereas Watchmen is a complicated comic that has a lot of pros and cons and is doing a lot of things, and the film does the opposite with that. It, it dampens the original work, and I've already talked about how I feel Zack Snyder was a poor choice for this adaptation, and that he doesn't really get the themes of Watchmen very well, even if he gets the narrative. And while I still think that like Watchmen being on a pedestal isn't good for comics and nerd media as a whole, I also get that this film is a less good version of this thing. So yeah, Crow is moving on to our semifinals. It will be going up against Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If only because it's kind of in the same geographic place on the bracket. The Crow is kind of my tangled for this racket. It's a thing I went in expecting to really not be super fan of, and now it has a special place in my heart. But where Tangled has a, like a bright, sunny place that makes sense, the Crow is snuck in there and I can't get it out of the attic. I keep hitting it with a broom. Does that make Cowboys and Aliens our dinosaur for this bracket? No. No. No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> I mean, like, by dint of it having gone on ahead, sure. I think you're uh, showing your hand too much for our next episode. Which, in fact, we will be discussing Cowboys and Aliens as well as Road to Perdition. If you want to make sure to tune into that episode, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. Also, thanks to Mike Knoll for being our Alan Moore. You can find more of his work uh, on our other podcast, A Study in Granada, where Mike and I go through the 1980s Sherlock Holmes series that premiered on ITV. Or if you wait till the end of this, you can hear a little trailer for his flagship show. With all that out of the way, once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Coming soon to a theater near you, it's The Equalizers, a bi-weekly podcast where two idiots drop a cinema sibling in the lap of a perfectly content solo film. Space Jam 2, The Order of the Phoenix. A very tight story filled with a lot of communism. She's just like allergic to diamonds. It's sort of like a neon sign. <laughs> Covered in air. <laughs> Is Charlie Guisamo our new god? 